Well, hello, Nate Christensen. Hello, Josh Edlow. <laughs> Welcome to the Edlow Podcast. Thanks for coming on. Uh, I've I've wanted to have you on. So I'll, just a little story. Um, you know, I know Tony Overbay very well, who you work with, and uh, he's been on the podcast a couple of times talking about faith crisis and narcissism. And he told me, he said, hey, you know, um, uh, uh, well, actually, and then another friend of mine said, hey, you should listen to this podcast that Tony did with this guy named Nate Christensen, who who talked about the neurology of the brain and how it works with addiction and, and different things of that nature. And I listened to it and I said, wow, that was really interesting. And then I mentioned to Tony, I was like, Hey, Nate Christensen's episode was really good. And he goes, Oh, I think he's in your ward. Cause our ward said you were in a different ward and you got kind of pulled in right after the pandemic. So I didn't really know everybody yet. And, uh, and then I remember uh, you came in in an elders quorum meeting and we were talking about positive mindset and you had given a uh, you you shared an answer about your studies about how the brain is prone to negativity and that you actually have to. I mean, you were very much more eloquent than I'm making it sound, but um, but you you mentioned how the brain is prone to negativity and that positive mindset is an active thing that you have to pursue. And I remember thinking to myself, I'm like that was really well spoken. And then I'd never made the connection that you were the Nate Christensen that they were talking about. And then we finally connected. And I, as I think I was the first conversation we had, I'm like, dude, I got to have you on my podcast. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yeah. And so um, you are, uh, tell everybody you, you got APCC at the end of your name. Tell us what that means. Okay, sure. Um, so I am an, an associate professional clinical counselor. Um, so that's a master's level uh, mental health therapist. And so there's kind of like three um, primary master's levels level clinicians that work with people with mental health related issues. So those would be like social workers, uh, marriage and family therapists, and then clinical counselors. Um, I don't know exactly why all are necessary. We do have slightly different focuses, which you can kind of tell from our from our name. So social workers are often more involved in like social settings. So they might work for government entities or hospitals or or you know some kind of um, larger organization that might require some help to navigate. And so so they are often associated with that. But they do private practice and like one on one therapy also. Marriage and family therapists work a lot with couples and families, but again, you know, could be in a private practice setting where they're also working with one-on-one -on -one, um, clients. And then there's uh, clinical counselors like myself. We're like the redheaded stepchild in California. For whatever reason, we're very small. Anywhere else in the U.S., we're actually a much larger group, but for some reason, California took a long time to, to let us in. Um, that was before my time. I got educated after. So this is kind of like a later career for me. So interesting. And you, uh, yeah, what we're, I'm sure we're going to talk about your story, but tell us what you were doing before you became a mental health professional. Okay. Well, I mean, I was doing a lot of, a lot of crazy stuff, um, trying to figure out life as many of us can, can sometimes, uh, struggle with. 
So, I mean, as far as work goes, uh, I was in construction for a while. So I served a two-year mission in Michigan. And then when I got back, um, I, I went to school and I also worked um, in construction. And uh, my brain just wasn't quite ready for the learning. Um, I, you know, I, I got by in high school, but I was never a great student. Um, I was later diagnosed as an adult with ADHD. So that answers some of those questions. Some of, some of those, those brain structures necessary for learning are not fully developed when we're younger. Um, so, so as I got older, I was able to do that when I was younger, I just, I just kept failing classes and struggling with, with things. So I just stayed in construction for a while. I eventually went back to school in my thirties, um, got a, a bachelor's in uh, business with an emphasis in finance and risk management. And then I worked as an underwriter for a while and it was a good job. I enjoyed it, but it just wasn't like the fulfillment wasn't there. I was looking for more um, because of my struggles with mental health and addiction and all sorts of things. I'd always been attracted to what people did that helped me. So that led me down this other journey where I was like, Hey, I, I wonder if, if this might make sense to pursue a mental health career. And um, so I applied to a school, got in. I didn't really expect to get in. I kind of set up this probably fake goalpost of if I get in, I'm going to take that as a sign that this is the right direction to go. So that's what I, I, I got accepted. And I was like, okay, I'm going for it. So that's what I've been doing ever since. Nice. And, you know, the one thing I li like about what you said, you know, you're in your you're in your early to mid 30s when you're making this transition. You have a good job, not fulfilling, but a good job. And you were willing to kind of sacrifice that and go after something that was more more fulfilling. Was that a tough decision for you to make? At the time, it probably was not as tough. And the reason why, which we might get into later, was um, I was I was divorced. So it was me and a couple of kids. And um and so it, I, I think if I had, if I had more people relying on me, so, so part of this whole complex story is my kids uh, only see me on the weekends or with their mom during the week. So I don't have a lot of people relying on me. So sometimes when you have a family, a lot of mouths to feed, a roof to, you know, keep overhead and, you know, all the other things that come along with, with paying bills. I didn't have as much of that. So, so that was my biggest concern is just making sure my family was taken care of. Um, but that wasn't a big issue. I, I don't know if I would have made that decision today where, you know, I'm remarried and that there's more mouths to feed and, and, uh, and, and I don't know that the family could, could allow for that. But at the time I was able to do that. So from that standpoint, it was an easy decision. And then when it came to just like the work, I, I was a lot more passionate about it. Again, with ADHD, if you have an interest in something, it's a lot more, e it's a lot easier to focus on that thing. Mm. So, yeah, you know, and that's that, that you get, you hit it right on the head of what I, what I was getting at is that I think a lot of people, um, I almost think that like sometimes, um, I heard I heard this this podcast. I can't remember which one it was, but I heard somebody talking about this, how how the worst thing for a person is to be just have a job that is just like barely comfortable enough. You know what I mean? It's one of those jobs where it's like, yeah, it's not fulfilling. It's not great. But you know what? It's just enough. They pay me just enough to keep me, you know, and you would like to do this other thing. But, you know, it, it almost has to. It's like you have to have it has to get 
so bad that you're willing to change it before you'll actually change. And I can tell you that from my own standpoint, I, I, I had a job uh, selling cell phones for a while, uh, right as I started law school and it was not fulfilling at all. I was very good at it, but, and I, and it mm -hmm. helped support my, you know, support myself and my family as I'm going through school, but, but it was not fulfilling by at all. And, uh, and I had been talking about leaving that job for a long time, but you know, it was in the middle of a, the financial crisis at the time. And, and uh, I remember thinking, I was like, ah, you know, where am I going to find a job that makes me this much money? It was just flexible with my school schedule. And it got to a point where it got so bad, the job, it, I just, I had to leave it. Uh, and it was the most uncomfortable decision to make at the time. Um, but it, if I hadn't made the decision at the time that I made it, I wouldn't be in the position I am now with a job that does fulfill me. I had to be pushed in that direction. And um, it sounds like for you, though, you didn't need big, uh, a lot of pushing to, to find something more fulfilling. No, I, I think that um, I think what you were talking about is kind of this pain threshold, higher the pain, the, the greater the motivation to make a change, the lower the pain. We can deal with a certain amount of low level pain if the benefits are good enough. Um, so for me, the, the job wasn't necessarily painful. It was it was more about the fact that I. And, and this is a really like probably much larger conversation where like where I was internally, I was not happy. And so I was like trying to change all of this external stuff, looking for something to make me happy. And, and the interesting thing is through my my becoming a mental health therapist and, you know, my own work and, you know, having to read a ton of books and everything, it's really made me realize that if I had been in a better place internally, I probably wouldn't have left the job because it was good. It, it was, it was a good job and it was, you know, it was good people and I enjoyed what I did and it was, you know, secure and had great benefits. Like it, it checked all the boxes. Do I enjoy what I do now more than that? Yes. Um, but so much so that I would have, you know, turned my life upside down to, to, to do it. Probably not if I was like kind of more secure and happy internally. Interesting. Well, let, let's let's talk about that. Let's go back and, and start the story of Nate Christensen. You grew up in the uh, Fair Oaks, Orangeville area. Yeah, grew up. Well, so born up north in a little town called Red Bluff. And then my parents moved around a little bit. My dad uh, worked in grocery business, so he would he would move every couple of years. So we were all over the place. We lived in um, Paradise. I don't know if you remember the oh, campfire. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I know Paradise. Yeah. Well, my uh, my family, I have family up in Gridley, which is not too far from there. Mm -hmm. And uh, mm -hmm. my, uh, I mean, he's kind of an uncle, but he's my mom's cousin. Owns a auto auto uh, an auto parts store, services Paradise quite a bit. So, oh, okay, interesting. Okay, okay. so yeah. yeah, so we lived Paradise, we lived Chico, we lived um, in Antelope and Citrus Heights, and um, Orangevale. We spent a little time in. Nevada, like this was all as, as a kid. So we, we moved a, f a fair bit. Okay. And then um, how long uh, did you end up in, what age were you when you ended up in Orangevale? So I was about probably about 11 when we ended up in Orangevale. And then we mostly stayed here except for about a year that we lived in Nevada when I was in high school. So yes, most of my like older childhood years were in Orangevale. Mm. Previous to and that, we were all over. And do you think um, you, you mentioned earlier that you had mental health issues? Um, 
you know, it, it, it sounds like more in your twenties and thirties, did those start earlier or uh, was it a, is it a result of, you mentioned ADHD um, or was there some sort of tra traumatic event involved? Um, you know, the genesis of mental health issues are not really clear. I mean, especially with dealing with like, so take, for example, depression, which seems like there's just a lot of factors that play into why someone might might develop depression. Um, I realized that I was a highly anxious person at a pretty young age. So um, I remember as young as maybe kindergarten, first grade, uh, you know, coming into a new classroom. I didn't know these kids. It was a new community and trying to reach out to other kids and being rejected. And that was a new experience for me. And I suddenly realized that I didn't like it there and I didn't want to be there. And, and so now I, that like kind of started me on this journey of, um, learning what it's like to navigate peers that you, you didn't really feel comfortable with. Um, would my journey have been different if I had been accepted? Probably not. You know, there's when it comes to certain mental illnesses, we're talking about not just experiences, but also genetic factors. I've got a long history of uh, mental illness on, you know, through through my parents, both parents side of the family. So I probably would have ended up in this place eventually anyway. But the early struggles that that people have not really not being sure how to connect well with other people maybe having um some some different kinds of neglect one of the things that i i am consciously trying to work on is is how difficult it is when you're busy as a parent and you're trying to do so many things and not forget about your kids oh, um, it's the that's a nightmare <laughs> it is a nightmare you know, and that's the thing, like I'm actually in this weird spot right now where my kids, so my kids are 16, 14, 12, and 10. My son is a young senior mm -hmm. and, uh, um, and just, you know, I have a job, I'm an attorney. I work a lot of hours, always have. And, you know, I also have outside interests to keep me sane. I go to the gym, I do this podcast you know, and I have all these different things that I like to do. And I, and I've really always been like that. I've always been a very busy individual and um, yeah, it's kind of waking me up to, oh my goodness, you know, my kids are, they're not that far off from being gone, you know, and, and you just kind of look back, not, not regretful because I'm grateful for everything I have. It's given me the opportunity to really provide a good life for them, but it's really hard because you just sit there and you're like, what's the, what's the balance? you know, my, you know, I have to have these things, but I also got to spend time with the kids. It's rough. It is. And it's, you know, I think sometimes the brain is always searching for this, this right, you know, what is the right thing to do? Um, and it's, it's so elusive, right? Like, I mean, it's so hard to find like, well, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess if I feel good about it, then it's right. But that's probably not the best measure either because emotions are fickle. So oh. I, I, I don't know. Yeah. It's man. just a struggle. Right. So do you, now the struggle that you're having with your, it sounds like you're having a struggle. You said you're working on this right now. Do you think that this is coming from something that happened when you, like, did you feel as though you were working for, through some things uh, as well as far as uh, feeling as though you weren't uh, paid a lot of attention to or anything like that? 
I, I was the oldest of six. Um, and so you can imagine my dad, you know, working a lot of hours too. My, my mom always having one younger than me. Um, and I was, I have to own my part in this. I, I, I wasn't brave enough to ask for what I needed. And so what ended up happening is my parents assumed that I was good. So it wasn't that I, I don't perceive that, that they did things wrong. I perceived that I, I didn't feel comfortable asking for what I needed from them. And, and so what ended up happening is I kind of felt like I was on an Island and I was alone, which for a highly anxious kid, the anxiety just skyrockets when you're, when you're trying to navigate the challenges of life solo. And, um, and, and so for me, my anxiety would get so severe that I would eventually in my, in my early twenties, I started to fall into these kind of occasional depressions that got really bad um, because the anxiety would kind of close me down. So I'd shut down. I wouldn't do anything. I wouldn't get out of bed. And then, you know, a few days into this, I'm just horribly depressed. Um, so that it was kind of a cycle where I'd kind of do that kind of in and out of that over years and years. Wow. So, um, that, that cycle of depression, maybe you can talk about, cause I've never suffered from depression like that. I've had, I've had down moments. I think everybody has, but it sounds like what you're dealing with is more of the chemical imbalance, depression and anxiety, um, as opposed to situational depression and anxiety. Would you say that's correct? Yeah, that's fair. It still comes and goes like situational depression. Um, so I was diagnosed with major depressive disorder and generalized anxiety. Um, I think at 21, maybe 22. Mm. So, so I was pretty, pretty early in my twenties. Mm. Um, I know to, I know that I had experienced them previous to that, but that's, that's when they rose to the level that, that a psychiatrist diagnosed them and started giving me medication. Mm. Um, as far as like my experience with, with depression, it, it kind of was one of these things where I, I looked at it as more of a state that was that I would just kind of trip and fall into. There wasn't really anything I could do about it for this reason. I was told that it was a chemical problem, and I believed that it was outside of my control to manage. And I have my this is just my opinion, and I understand there are people in the mental health field that may completely disagree with me. I think that's incorrect. Uh, we are learning more about depression and kind of what's going on like internally in the brain. Um, the initial hypothesis around depression is constantly evolving and early treatments were helpful for some, but not for others. So it pretty clearly is more complicated than, than what our, the initial opinions were about it. So are you saying that because you, you think that because people kind of told you this is out of your control, you would get into these depressive states and you wouldn't really do anything to fight it. Cause you're like, well, there's nothing I can do about it. Is that what you're saying? Right. Right. Okay. Well, that's the thing. If, if it's truly a chemical problem, the only thing that will make me better is a pill. Right. I mean, and, unless you're telling me, you know, these things will also help with the chemical, but that wasn't the story I was being told. Now, maybe now people might be doing a little bit more of that. I think that the you know, the mental health field is always expanding and learning and growing. And so, so maybe that's happening more, but at the time it was, you need this, these pills. And, and so you feel very dependent, but that was, again, my experience as like, if I don't take my pills, I can't function. And I wasn't functioning that great on the pills, but it was a little bit better. Right. So, 
do you uh so so we'll get into more of your story but i want to kind of stop here and ask so now you uh, looking back this is in your 20s you're now in your 40s right so you're mm-hmm. talking 20 years ago with the 20 mm-hmm. years of experience that you've gained is there anything that you do now if you find yourself getting into that state of mind that you do to kind of counteract that yes and i love this question because this leads me to the thing that i'm perhaps most passionate about um i am a huge proponent of what's called the wellness model and there's a couple different like um ways that people break these components of the wellness model apart uh, i'll share them with you real give you kind of a bird's eye view if if that's okay totally okay Okay, so I love sharing this with people because it allows me to just say like, okay, these are the the basics that every human being needs. And then they can figure out for themselves and they usually know right away like where they're deficient. Mm -hmm. So I like to use the acronym POSIES, the uh, like it's like a bundle of flowers. Mm -hmm. So um, the P is for physical. For most people, they have shelter, they have clean water. So, so that's not really a, a big issue. Where people often have struggles, from from my experience, is their diet. Western diets are highly processed. Also, all, I mean, it's convenient, but it's also a lot of evidence that's not particularly good for us. Um, sleep, like we really probably need at least seven. Most people probably might even need seven and a half. Um, in a presentation I watched a few years ago. There was a discussion about uh, cerebral cortical fluid, which actually washes over the brain at night. And recent data indicates that's about a seven and a half hour process. Um, Not to mention other things that are happening internally in the brain, recataloging and basically getting the the brain kind of freshened up for the next day. That all takes time. So if people are not sleeping well or they're not getting the, the right amount of hours of sleep, that puts them at a deficit right first thing in the morning. The next thing is going to be exercise. You know, it used to be that exercise was built into life, right? You go back a hundred years and and everybody's walking everywhere and and you know they're they're working on their house because you you can't just pick up a phone and call some handyman to come take care of your roof. You got to do it yourself. Um, mm-hmm. So so people were just m- much more physical. Their body was was moving a lot. So mm-hmm. so those are the things out of physical that I see or re- that really end up being a problem. Mm-hmm. Um, the O in posies is occupational and I include financial in that. So it, it might be that you make enough money, but you hate your job. So mm-hmm. people that just hate what they do, as you mentioned earlier, that sometimes is a motivation to go find something else. Um, typically what you see is you don't have to love your job, but if you feel valued, if you believe that you're an important part of that, that you have input, um, if, if you are able to, uh, have a little bit of flexibility. Those all seem to relate well with uh, fulfillment and satisfaction that relate to positive uh, mental wellness. Find the financial pieces. You know, is my job pay me enough that I can pay my rent or pay my mortgage and pay you know pay for everything that I need? Do I have enough money? Now, sometimes that's another another discussion, which is um, you know you can always make as much as you spend. Right. So with right. some people, it might, it might be like, hey, let's talk about kind of whether or not a budget might make sense to kind of crack down on things. Um, so, so again, there's kind of a secondary conversation on, on what we're seeing right now and in, in today's world with stuff and, and, you know, everybody's stuff and everybody wanting stuff and the cost 
uh, to get that stuff. And then kind of that momentary pleasure. And then it doesn't mean anything, but we paid, well, you know, whatever for it. That's exactly what it is too. I, you know, I, I, it's kind of funny, you know, I've, I've done well for myself financially, um, but it took me actually getting money to realize how little satisfaction it really brings. You know, I mean, mm -hmm. I think that if you have enough to cover yourself, put a little, put a little away, the things that you, that people like covet uh, for, for lack of a better term. And I was very much like this. It was like, oh, if I had the big house and I had the fancy car and, you know, I had all these things, then, you know, uh, then I'd be happy. And then I got all those things and I realized how little it really meant. Like, you know, you, you, anything that I bought that was like a quote unquote, like bucket list item or whatever, I'd look at it and I would be like, this was cool for like a month, you know, and then it was on to the next thing. And it just, it brings no, it brings no fulfillment, but, but the, but the idea of being financially secure, hugely important, you know, mm -hmm. like being able to live within your means, being able to not have major debt, um, you know, things of that nature. Um, what I would call, what I would call bad debt, like, you know, high interest credit card debt, um, that you can't pay that you know you realistically can never pay back i have friends who have a ton of student loan debt that they know they're never going to be able to pay back and it's just the anxiety of that is just is brutal you know yeah so, so that's that's the o what, what's the what's right. the f so the first s is social and and recognizing that um there's like a couple of components here um, we have people that are more introverted and people that are more extroverted. And sometimes extroverts prefer more friends with maybe a less deep connection. It's not always the case. Introverts might have fewer friends and they're, they're maybe like deep, they feel much stronger about the depth of connection. Um, what really matters in this is, do I, do I believe that I have a support structure that I can lean on? Like if things get bad, do I have somebody I can talk to? Do I have somebody that'll listen? Do I have, you know, people that care about me? Um, whether that's 15 friends like that or three friends like that, like it's, it, the number matters less than, than our belief about those relationships. Does that make sense? That totally makes sense. Yeah. Cause I mean, there's, there's some people out there that I know, like one of my best friends, he, uh, my very, I think my very best friend in the world, you know, he, he does not have a lot of people that he talks to, you know, um, he does not have a lot of friends. He, he's never been, even when we were in high school, uh, has never been particularly social. I was always kind of dragging him along to the social things. Whereas me, I tended to be friends with everybody, but I only had a few that were like, that were kind of like my people, if that made sense, you know, like I had like mm -hmm. the people really knew me you know who really uh knew the inner workings of josh edlow and then i had a bunch of friends that were kind of you know they they were superficially knew me but you know um so i totally get it yeah makes a lot of sense yeah so one of the challenges that we're seeing with that is we're just becoming more and more distant. You know, social media has kind of taken over this role where people used to, you know, write letters and then they would call on the phone. And, you know, as, as time has changed, the way we communicate changes. 
um, COVID really separated people a lot. And, and some, unfortunately, some of the people that had maybe more social anxiety and stuff like that really struggled to reintegrate and might still be today. So it, it can be hard for people to spend that much time away from society. And, and the one thing that I believe strongly about anxiety is it feeds on avoidance mm. and, and say, you know, I, I don't intend to, in any way express any opinion politically about whether lockdowns were good or not good there there's reasons to do it and reasons not to do it but just from an effect standpoint um i noticed because i'm a little bit more introverted when the lockdowns happen i i kind of felt a little bit better because i was like oh great like i don't have to be too worried about not going out and being social but after a little while they started reopening things and then people's like now felt pressure and stress about reintegrating and people that were, were really struggling with, with social anxiety didn't know how to do that. And so that was a big challenge. Um, I worked with some that like, it's, it's everything they can do just to go to the store. It's, it's just so terrifying for them. So. And is that, is that terrifying because they're maybe they were afraid of getting COVID or you mean they're just afraid of just being social again? Well, generally speaking, social anxiety disorder is is specifically focused on on just being around people and having to interact. So this connects with something that I think is really interesting, um, which is the part of our brain that is essentially a prediction engine. Um, I find it really fascinating. It was laid out pretty well in a book that I really like um, called uh, The Expectation Effect, which was, uh, I think it was David Robson, Robson that wrote that. Yes. And then um, he talked about, about how, like, we need a certain amount. If you, if you think of something, I'm trying to, trying to think of a way to, to connect this. Have you seen, have you seen like the movie, uh, like The Terminator? Oh, of course. Yeah. Okay. okay. One or two. So the, okay. <laughs> so this might be a good one. Do you remember those scenes where it shows the Terminator's point of view? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so what is happening when it shows his point of view? He's like he's analyzing all the data of everything that's going on, and it's like it's infrared, and he sees somebody, and then it does a quick scan of the person and gives him all the ideas of that person and the other person. So he just he's basically scanning the room and trying to get all the data from everybody around. Right. So, so anybody that's listening to this, this a neurologist, please forgive how like sloppy this might be, but it's just the, I think the easiest way in my view to look at this, imagine your brain doing that all the time, but instead of getting a number that's telling you like threat, non-threat, you know, if this is a threat, you have a 95% chance to, to win in a fight, you know, like, like all of this analysis, take away all of that visual analysis and turn it into feelings and imagine that everything you view is a threat and you have a 0% chance of, of winning a, a battle. Like, no, that's, like that's, that's, that's exhausting. <laughs> yeah. It's terrifying. <laughs> right. So, yeah. So it's interesting. It's interesting it to do this. I, I got to tell you, I, it's interesting to hear this because I, I have a hard time. I, this is just me. Sometimes I have a hard time really understanding people that are different than me in these types of things, if that makes sense. Like mm -hmm. I, I'm really grateful you're explaining this to me. It's helpful because yeah, I've never been somebody, I just don't ever remember going to a party and being nervous about talking to people. There've been times I've gone and I don't want to talk to people. You know what I mean? Like, it's mm -hmm. like I go and I just go, 
God, I really don't want to be coming to this thing. But then I just, for whatever reason in my brain, I just go, I got to be social and I get around and I talk to people, but I've never been afraid to like be social. You know what I mean? Or, mm-hmm. uh, I've never been afraid. Like when we talked about depression, I've never been afraid or, or like, I've never been so down in the dumps that I couldn't will myself out of bed. Do you see what I'm saying? So it's like, when mm-hmm. I hear these things, it's so hard for me to imagine. But when you explain it, I can understand how that could be completely exhausting and terrifying. Yeah. And I, I think that's one of the challenges is for people that ha- that don't live this. I'm trying to understand it can be a real challenge be- because without having lived it, some it, it's hard to explain in a way that someone can like really connect with. Um, so if you have... You know, so so some people may argue for for men, you know, we're more likely to experience less anxiety in social situations. I, I don't know what the statistics are on this. There certainly are statistics on anxiety disorders. Females are twice as likely to be to be diagnosed with an anxiety disorder as men are. Um, the amygdala, which is our fear center, it, it regulates other things like sadness and anger and, and modulates aggression. Um, so it has other other responsibilities. But it has uh, androgen receptors in it, which basically means if you have testosterone, it's not any testosterone, but let's just say higher levels of testosterone, your anxiety is going to be lower. It's possibly why young men are bad at, at deciphering whether or not driving 90 miles an hour and passing somebody in the bike lane is a good idea when they first get their driver's license. You know, you're just high in testosterone. That fear center is, is very dampened. You're not getting those signals. Men could have a testosterone level a hundred times higher than the average female. So, so, you know, they might have a very different experience. They're smaller than us. They might have more more anxiety than us. They might be introverted. You know, there's so many layers as to why somebody might develop one way versus another way. That's interesting, man. Testosterone levels are linked to, to, uh, what did you say it was linked to like higher testosterone results and less anxiety? Is that what you're saying? So it's, it's not a, it's not a perfect balance, but generally that's what you see. And the reason why appears to be because there's androgen receptors in the amygdala, the amygdala, if somebody is feeling fear, anxiety, the amygdala is going off. And Mm -hmm. so it could be that that because of these androgen receptors where testosterone is able to bind to, it dampens some of the signaling. So for let's say, for example, you might have a man and a woman that are both, you know, facing jumping off of a bridge into into water and and the man might feel just, you know, slightly scared, but really excited. And the woman might feel like she's going to die. You know, that's some of the possible explanations for why people have differing experiences with doing the same thing that could be gender related. Wow. Interesting. So now you, so you, we've gone through PO, what was the the S? Are we on E now? What's, what's the next? Uh, I, we're on I. Okay. I. So the I is intellectual. Um, Like everything with the body, it is use it or lose it. You said you like to go to the gym? Oh yeah. Okay. So how, how do you get your bench press or your squat? to improve oh you got to keep you got to keep lifting more and more just keep pushing Mm -hmm. right the resistance game right right same same with our brains so so if you want to maintain mental acuity if you want to continue to improve in your ability to um 
do tasks. And this is going back to that prediction engine, that prediction engine, like, like there's, we have these ledgers. Okay. The more you do something, the more confidence you build in it, the less you do something, the, the less confident you are in it. Even if you have failures, the fact that you, you have some successes will, will build like checks on that positive side. And then that negative side, you don't do it or you have a failure, you're getting checks there. So essentially what we're trying to do here is, is use the brain in a way that's helpful, positive, builds neural connections and allows us to develop some confidence in not just our ability to think, but problem solve. So that's a big part of life for a lot of people when they're presented with a problem and they have no confidence in their ability to solve problems that can cause a lot of, of anxiety you know, there's all sorts of potential issues with that. Now, some people don't necessarily worry. They just have kind of a natural inbred confidence. I don't know where that comes from. I don't relate with that, but some people are just, it doesn't matter what you give them. They just feel confident they're going to take it on. So that's kind of a special gift in and of itself. Um, but for the average human being, what we're trying to build, build is, is kind of this confidence in our ability to mentally work things and solve problems. Um, kind of a personal story. I had a family member um, not too long ago, um, that, that ended up in a horrible, horrible depression and ended up taking his life. Mm -hmm. And what I was told was, um, that really there was a big driver for him, which was, um, uh, he was, he was getting a little bit older. He was not quite ready to retire, but he was really struggling with his ability to do what he once could. Um, there may have been some, you know, some other medical issues going on mentally that, that didn't get diagnosed. Maybe they didn't get all the way through all of that stuff, but there's, there's certainly this idea that having, maintaining, building confidence in our abilities relates pretty well to a general sense of well-being. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah, I've, I've experienced that in my own family, as far as people who, um, who take their own lives and uh, you know, it's interesting when these things, they don't always seem to happen, but they seem to happen around either some sort of a, a transitional period, if that makes sense. Like I've, I've seen that a lot, you know, seen a lot of people fall into these, these really bad states in divorce or, you know, change in life circumstances, health issues, you know, like you said, it sounds like the person you're talking about had a hard time with his age, you know, he's just age related and, and medically he can't, he can't be as physically present as he once was. So it's too bad. Yeah. Yeah. And that's really distressing again, you know, all of this is related to, to how anxious a person is. You know, what do they do? They have mental health related related issues even before that, which in his case he did. So it just really compounded what already existed and and became too much. Mm. So it's really sad, but you know that's kind of part of life that that happens. You know, and and it's sad for the people it happens to. It's sad for their loved ones. You know, it's it's just kind of one of those struggles that we all we all end up going through at one point or another or, or many people yeah and you know that's the thing that i think it's it, i was i can't remember who i was talking to i was talking to a young person might have been one of my kids probably but we were talking about this this concept of change and how um 
you know, that they were struggling with the change. And I just said, Hey, you know, that's just, that's just the way life is, you know, everything, my whole life has, has been changed, you know, every, every, because there's, there's all sorts of things that happen. Thought I was going to be a pro wrestler. Wrestling school closes down. You know what I mean? Thought I was, you know, didn't think I was going to go on a mission, ended up going on a mission, came home, became a lawyer. Like, you know, all, all of these things that, you know, I, I thought I was going to sell cell phones all the way through law school and I was going to buy a house and the house was going to, you know, help me pay for my student loans, housing market crashes, lose my job. And I just was like, you know, things are going to change all the time. You just got to deal with it. But five, 10 years from now, when you're in a better place and you're a better person, you're not even going to remember how you feel about today, <laughs> you know? Yeah. So, um, so there, so, okay. So I, 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 obviously the posies doesn't, doesn't spell exactly like posies. So you're at P O S I what's the next thing. E E. Oh, okay. Oh, it, maybe I'm wrong. My group, my spelling is wrong. Okay. There you go. E. So E, what's... I, was just saying, I hope it's spelled right. Cause I've been telling everybody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. So what's the next E? Okay. So E is for emotional. Um, at, at its simplest level, it's about hope. Like to people, and I think that connects well to what you were just saying. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting about this prediction engine that, that's in all of our brains is it measures experience more heavily than it measures knowledge, which which means that poses a problem for young people, right? If you haven't had experience with a breakup and you're going through a breakup, like that's often the hardest one or one of the hardest ones for people because they might know everything's going to be okay or believe that everything's going to be okay, but they don't have this experience to lean on where everything was okay. So they're going through it for the first time. There's so many unknowns and the brain is so good at second guessing everything and being negative. And so, so that's kind of this idea that, that I'm going to put my trust for some people, maybe that's, that's in family or friends or self or higher power or whatever, but, but I'm going to trust that, uh, that things will work out. Mm. Yeah. You know, and, and that's a, 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 let me ask you, how do you instill that in someone who's struggling with that? Because I, yeah, I mean, I've tried like with, with, especially with younger people, you know, uh, they get in these bubbles, you know, you're in high school, you're in middle school, their whole, you know, their whole world is right there. And, you know, you can, you can tell them till they're blue in the, you're blue in the face. Like, yeah, wait till you're 40 and you realize that all that stuff that happened in high school really didn't matter that much, you know, but when you're in it, it's so hard to see past that. So how do you instill hope in somebody when the, um, you know, emotional well-being in those situations? So that's a great question. Um, I think because of my bias as a mental health therapist, what I really ultimately would do is just try to get them to open up about how they're feeling. There's a lot of power in just talking about how we feel um the the truth is i i don't know that there's any way you know there's no shortcut to climbing to the peak of mount everest like mm -hmm. you, you have to just climb the peak and so everyone's experience doing that is is differently that's intended to be a metaphor for going through something difficult right. um so, you know, you can stand there on the sidelines and cheer them on and tell them you love them and, and you climb that peak once too, and you know, they can do it, but they still have to do it. And so sometimes they may just need to just like take a minute, express how they're feeling, get some support, you know, and, and sometimes we might want to 
kind of invalidate how they're feeling. Oh, no, I, I know you can do it. You know, hey, I'm sad. This is overwhelming. I don't know if I can do this. Oh, no, you, I know you can. You know, and, and so sometimes it's, it's kind of stopping our, our, our natural desire to, to want to lift them ourselves and just connect with whatever they're going through in that moment. And maybe be like, hey, I felt that same way too. And it was really hard. And that next step was maybe even the worst. And I, I, but I'm here for you. What, what can I do? And sometimes people just need to know that they have that support and, and then they take that next step, next step, and they realize they can do it. And then they just keep going again. So there's not a perfect answer. Everybody might need something a little bit different. That's kind of what I lean on again, because of my profession. Yeah. Yeah. You know, I I've had a occasion where one of my kids, they, they mess up in school or they, they get mad because something didn't go their way. And what I try to tell them is I go, okay, so here's the deal, right? Feel your feelings, take the night, be upset, give yourself 24 hours to be upset. And then once you're done with that, next step is figure out what you're going to do now. It's already mm -hmm. over. Can't change it. Right. It happened. So feel it, give yourself a time limit to feel less way. And then once that time limit is over, just start thinking, okay, what do I do now? What's next? And, um, yeah, you know, I, that's how I've done it at times. There've been times that there's, you know, it's, it's harder at sometimes depending on how significant the, the trauma is or the experience is easier said than done. But, um, but, you know, I, I try to, you know, something bad happens. I give myself a night to feel bad about it. And then the next day is a new day, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So, so now emotional. And then there's an, is there a last S? There is a last S. Um, so um, like that was like really, really basic on, on the emotional. There's a little bit more to it because of the complexity of our emotional system. Part of this is like, you know, learning skills to manage how we're feeling, having some kind of a process. And, and I like your suggestion. That might be a good process. You know, maybe your kids will adopt that and, you know, they might teach it to their kids. But, but just having some kind of a system that kind of helps us work through our emotions, understanding that um, there may not be anything we can do about them. And they're just kind of going to be there and we're going to have to find a way through them as opposed to waiting for them to change and then dealing with it. Sometimes that is, I think where I got in trouble was I was, I was waiting to feel better before I was ready to do anything about it. And what I really needed was to do something about it. And then that would help me feel better. If that, if that, if you follow that, if that makes sense. Oh, I, I absolutely feel of, of follow that, you know, there, you know, you, I tend to be a bit of an overthinker. I mean, I'll give this podcast as an example, right? I mean, I thought about doing a podcast for, I mean, at least a year before, before I did it, I had kind of done a podcast with a buddy that, you know, I was doing this thing called saints on cinema, but I had been thinking about doing my own podcast and had probably talked to a couple of friends of mine about it for a really long time. And then finally someone just said, you know what, just you, you could talk yourself to death on this, you know, just get some guests, do some things. It'll figure, you'll figure it out. And he's like, no one's going to listen to the first few anyway, you know? <laughs> so he's like, so just, yeah. a, you know, he's like, give it a shot, see how it goes. You're going to get better as you go and just do it. And that's kind of been, you know, I, I, I tend to be personally, you know, uh, not to make it all about me, but that there's my narcissistic tendencies uh, is that I've, uh, I've tended to, I feel like that's kind of been my situation is I, I you know, I have these harebrained ideas and then I just kind of go for it and figure it out on my, on, my, on the way. 
So when someone says something like, that's just crazy, you know, like when I said I was going to go to law school and I was going to work full time, that's just insane. I'm like, yeah, it's insane, but somebody, people do it. So I'm sure I can, you know what I mean? And, and then I got into it and I was like, wow, I'm really, this is really hard. Well, I already put in the pay. I already, already got the loans out. So I can't, can't stop now. You know what I mean? Got to keep going. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. and, and yeah, I mean, sometimes the only way out is through. So I understand completely what Definitely. you're talking about. Yeah. Know? Yeah. I actually like your approach to things. Um, Tony, uh, Tony practices acceptance and commitment therapy, which I, I do as well. Cause I, I really see a lot of wisdom in it. And, um, and one of the guys that really helped develop it and did a lot of studies about it was named uh, Russ Harris and Tony had him on and I was listening to their podcast and he was talking about how we kind of need to like shift our paradigm. So what he saw was that people that were maybe more depressed and anxious and overthinking things were spending about 80% of their time, like kind of internally in their head planning. I mean, doing a lot and about 20% of their time actually like out and experiencing life. And, and they really needed to switch that. So people that are like 80% doing and being okay with failure, like understanding that failure is not doesn't mean anything other than we tried something and it didn't work and maybe we'll try it again or maybe now we have knowledge that that wasn't really what we wanted to do anyway and so you know you gain either way um and spending more like 20 percent of our time planning and getting ready and adjusting whatever we need to do that seems to be a, a like a, a better ratio for people that are, are relatively healthy yeah but then you get the people who they never think internally <laughs> and then those <laughs> That's the most frustrating is when you got people. I, I think I, if I if I'm left to my own without really having to think about it, because uh, I tend to be somebody who really looks internally quite a bit. So like anytime something happens to me, even if there are external factors, I tend to look at myself as the reason why things happen. And I think that's just because it's like if I'm going to tout my my successes, like I have to own my failures. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. And so. So, um, but then when you get the people who it's always somebody else's fault, you know, it makes it, you know, it, it, I guess what I'm asking is, is it sounds like what you're saying is, is 80% of just doing and 20% intro introspection tends to be a good percentage. So does that make sense? Is that saying that right? Well, that's what Dr. Russ Harris, um, that's what his opinion is. Um, that makes us, that makes a certain amount of sense to me as well. Um, I think where, where the danger often lies with what you're talking about is kind of on the poles. So if you have a spectrum and then you have on, say on one end, you have everything is everybody else's fault. And then on, on the opposite end is everything is my fault. Neither of those are particularly healthy places. Um, usually you want, to be somewhere closer to the middle because it's just it's just not neither of those statements are true like you need a healthy amount of introspection but you also need to be able to understand like hey this isn't necessarily my issue like i want to love and support this person but just because you know my partner or my kid or or my coworker is sad doesn't mean i have to be sad like i can i can be there for support for them but but i don't have to to feel what they feel and that can be very hard for people that are like say highly empathetic where they're experiencing all the emotions of all the people all around them. And, and that sometimes can be exhausting because you, I mean, you don't even know what you feel because you, you're just too busy feeling what everybody else is feeling. So that's not really healthy either. So you, you have to be balanced. Yeah. I was just recently having a conversation with somebody um, about this. They we were having a conversation. They were talking about 
known for a really long time and they keep getting in these circumstances that are just not, you know, not favorable uh, for them. And I, I remember I just I had to have a tough conversation with them and was like, you know, okay, so that doesn't surprise me at all that you got in that situation. And they were kind of upset about it. And I go, well, how many times are you going to get into this circumstance before you start looking inward and saying, okay, like I get it that, that whoever's do whatever this happens to you, it's a, it's a negative experience. But if it keeps happening over and over and over in your life, at some point you have to look inward and say, okay, so what am I doing to contribute to these things happening? Like I, I'm kind of a numbers guy in that where I go, okay, I had a psychology professor in college actually, who I really liked, who, who told me he's, he was talking about interpersonal relationships. And he said, he goes, uh, he was having some problems with his daughter. And he said, uh, so what I did was I go, okay, so, so let's, let's look at all the factors here. Um, she, you know, it, do I have problems with my other kids? No. Right. I don't have problems with my other kids. Does she have problems with other relationships? Yes. Right. So who's more likely to be the issue here and why we're having an, a problem, right? Not to say it's mm-hmm. all her fault, but who is likely to be a, a greater contributor. And I was trying to say that and they just, you know, they were just in a place that they weren't able to hear it. You know what I mean? But I was mm-hmm. like, but I'm going, okay, so how many, how many times do you have to get in this circumstance before you start realizing that you must be doing something to, that there might be some things that you are doing that are, can, because these things don't happen to other people like they happen to you and uh of course you know like i said i mean some people don't like can't handle the the self-criticism i appreciate it when people tell me that you know what i mean i just even though it's not comfortable i appreciate it because it causes me to think maybe there is you know what i mean does that make sense yeah absolutely it does yeah absolutely the ego is fragile It, it doesn't really doesn't want to be wrong even though it's wrong a lot um, and, and we're far better off if we're willing to confront it and fix these things, because if we don't, we end up in those situations where things are going wrong frequently and we're not able to see our part and why they're going wrong. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, I'll tell you what, there's, there's nothing that'll make you more humble and realize that you do things wrong than raising kids. You know yeah. I mean? Yeah. I told my oldest recently, cause he was, he's really upset with me because he sees his youngest brother, who's the youngest of four. And he gets away with a lot more than he got away with at 10. And I was like, what yep. do I, what, what can I tell you, man? Like I, different parent. I was a different parent back then. You were my, you're my test kid. You know, you're the one I'll, I'll pay for your therapy when you're older. It's fine. Right. <laughs> <laughs> I like that compromise. Yeah, <laughs> right. yeah. I don't want you to pay for therapy. I wanted a phone when I was 12. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> exactly. So, um, okay. So the, the last S in posies, what is that? So the last S is spiritual. Um, so for some people, that is definitely their religious faith. For other people, it's not religious in nature because they they may not be religious, but like it's connection to something bigger than them. So it could be a community. You know, it might be that they they give back by you know serving at a soup kitchen or 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 you know, it, it's just something they're connected to that's larger than themselves. Um, certainly for my clients that have faith, obviously for, for you and I that are religious, um, relig- people that are confident in their religious beliefs um, seem to have a higher level of life satisfaction. They seem to self-report that they're generally um, happier, they feel better about their lives. 
Um, the, if you, I mean, if you look at posies generally, you can probably see, interestingly enough, like a church can, can actually help with several of those things on there. So, so it's, it doesn't surprise me that, that somebody that's, that's religious, that has a faith and a, a community they're involved in, you know, that's all centered around their religiosity is reporting better happiness and wellness than those that maybe don't have that community. Do you believe that though? Here's what I mean by that, because you hear of all these people and admittedly the people that, 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 uh, that are saying this are not particularly religious most of the time or have been formally religious and no longer are. They talk about the shame component that comes from high kind of like maybe more high demand religion. Like we're part of a high demand religion. You know, it, it's sure. it's not really a going to church on Sunday. It's a lifestyle, you know, that, that mm -hmm. we live. And and so the, there's kind of a you know, I had I had somebody on um, who shared her faith crisis. She left and ended up becoming polyamorous with her with uh, with her husband. And uh, and she talked a lot about kind of a shame component that came for for her. But it's interesting that you say that people self-report that they're actually happier if they're practicing their religion. Do you think that that is accurate or do you think that that's just something that they believe they have to tell themselves or maybe a combination of both? Yeah, it could be either. Um, you know, I have a kind of a complicated belief around this that some people would find offensive like it's just it's just kind of where i've landed which is um so the book buddha's brain by rick hansen um was really really helpful for me to kind of work through some of my stuff it talked a lot about kind of the brain the nature of it what it does um they also talk about things like the prediction engine they also talked about this idea of projection I think, I think most people know what projection is, but sure. they minimize how much it's happening in their life. And, and I'll give you an example. Um, if, I, if I'm driving and every time somebody cuts me off, I give them the, I, you know, give them the finger and tell them they're number one and like mm -hmm. basically have some, some choice words for them. And then I am merging and realize that I, I didn't see this car and I am now cutting them off what am I going to assume they are doing? Well, uh, um, if, wait, I'm, just, I'm sorry. Say that again. It kind of okay. Cut okay. So, so if I, if I, when I drive people that cut me off, uh -huh. I, I flip them off, yell a bunch of swear words at them, tell them sure. they're terrible, you know, do my road rage thing. If I were to do that every time somebody, somebody cut me off, and then one day I was merging and I realized there was a car I didn't see in my blind spot and I actually cut them off. What am I going to assume they're doing? Oh, I don't know what you're going to assume they're doing, but I would certainly find an excuse. Well, that was, it was an accident or they were speeding. Or maybe speeding. They, you know, they were right. speeding up. I couldn't see them. It wasn't my fault. Right. 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 So, so the first thing we might do is find an excuse as to, to why ours was not intentional, but everybody else's is. Yeah. But what a lot of people often also do is assume that those people are doing the same thing. So they're avoiding the rearview mirror. They don't want to see the finger. They're like trying to avoid them if they try to pass them up and they're rolling their window down and saying anything to them. Oh, yeah. I like this concept that we are the standard by which we judge the world. Mm. That essentially means that 
that anytime I encounter something, I am going to first, my brain is going to first look in my catalog and say, well, have you ever encountered that? And what was your response? That's where it starts. Mm. And a lot of these things are reflexive. They happen instantaneous. I mean, it's so fast that we can't even prevent it. And so my belief is, um, again, this is where it might get offensive for people, that people that say that other people are highly judgmental might be projecting their own judgmentalness on other people. Oh, 100%. At least at least the people who who have a major problem with it. If that makes sense. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like it, the people out there, like I know I know of a couple people um who, you know, uh I can I can think of one in particular who you know, he's no longer, he used to go to church. He no longer does. And now all he talks about is, is how judgy everybody was. But I remember him when he was going and I'm like, you used to talk trash about everybody. You know what I mean? Like right. you were one of those guys. And, uh, uh, you know, and I, this, this is the same guy who would get up and bear his testimony all the time, you know, and he had some things that he had to work through, <laughs> but, um, which which led to him eventually you know leaving but but my point is is that i i absolutely believe that 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 the people who i i'll tell you i think i think that yes like people are judgy but i don't but i think that's just a human nature thing you mm -hmm. know what i mean like i i don't like if somebody is judgy i don't therefore not want to associate with them if that makes sense like i i think that mm -hmm. they probably are judgy but everybody's got something that they're dealing yeah. with, right? They do. Yeah, they do. I mean, that brings up a, a scripture. Um, I don't remember where in the New Testament, but, you know, Christ says, judge not, that you be not judged. And and I I, I used to think that that meant, um, and I think there's a further part, which is uh, by with, for with which, with that same judgment shall you also be judged. I'm paraphrasing here, so yeah, forgive me. Yeah. I, I used to always think that meant that that God would judge us less hard, less harshly if if we were not judgmental. And I, I still hope that that's kind of what that means. Mm -hmm. um, I tend to also now believe that that means if if we like to just give a, an example, if if I think that alcoholics are the worst and that I and then I, I go and get drunk. I believe that somewhere in my psyche, I'm is my psyche's really upset with me because I just did the thing that everybody else that does is the worst. Like whether or not my ego wants to accept that or find excuses for it or whatever it does, I just tend to believe that we have internal conflict. And when we're really judgmental, it just it creates a lot of problems for us because we're imperfect and we're eventually gonna have some issues. And if we have all these labels about people that have these issues, what does that mean about us? Mm. Oh, that's a that's a good point. And do you think that the projection, though, is kind of our own, I don't know if you call it consciousness or ego, trying to protect us? I do. I also think that um, the brain doesn't want to change. So if it focuses on everybody else's problems, it doesn't have to acknowledge its own. Thereby, it doesn't need to expend this effort to change because everything else that is a problem is external of the brain itself. Yeah, you know, I think that's also really interesting is um, I remember hearing uh, a therapist, it might have been 
it might have been Tony, um, basically saying something along the lines of, you know, you, you get this person, like if he's if he's treating a couple, and the couple, you know, the the husband or the wife is pointing to their spouse and saying, "Well, I don't like the way they, you know, if they just dressed a little bit better, you know, then it would be better." And then they dress a little bit better, and like, well, they just made a little bit more money at work, you know, and then they get a promotion, and they're like. You know, I just don't like your face. You know, it's just like it's it, it, they're like, and at some point, at some point when there's always something, you you there you have to come to the conclusion that okay, the problem may not be the other person. The problem may be something internal. You're looking at external external things as the problem when it's really an internal problem. You know, and and it's really hard to look at that and to look inward. I mean, it's not comfortable. I do it. I said earlier, I do it a lot, I think, and, and and I don't necessarily think it's always healthy to be constantly looking inside and, and you know, beating yourself up over all your past transgressions. But I think it's also healthy for you to think about what you're doing to contribute, you know, to situations that are not ideal, you know? Yeah, I would agree with that. I mean, on, on, with, with the idea of being uncomfortable with looking inward, I'm reading a book right now about um, a counseling uh, theoretical orientation called Internal Family Systems. I think it was by Schwartz. And he brought up something interesting. Um, his belief uh, within Internal Family Systems is that we are to love ourselves. Um, and he goes as far as to say that his he believes that Christ's commandment to love our enemies also applies to those parts of ourselves that we, that we hate and find as an enemy to us, mm-hmm. um, which is an interesting idea. Um, his, his whole thought process is it's hard to integrate uh, into the self, at least this is where I'm up to in the book. I'm sure there's going to be more. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, this conflict with, you know, when we identify the parts of ourselves that we hate and we have opposition to, um, it keeps us out of our ability to really turn inward and look in a non-judgmental and loving way at all parts of ourself. Doesn't mean you have to give that part power to do what it wants to do, but it does mean that you can look at it compassionately and lovingly and understand, like, this is just a part of the human experience. You know, I don't have to hate myself over a you know, a desire to do a thing that I find really abhorrent. No, that's, that's true. And isn't it interesting? I I don't know if everybody's like this, but I know I I tend to have a lot of people who call me and kind of rely on me for, you know, you know, trust me with, with their, their issues. And, you know, it's so funny because when they, when they call, I, I try to be as empathetic as possible try to love them as much as possible. Uh, you know, I try not to abandon anybody when they're in a bad spot because I just think, okay, one day this person's going to hit rock bottom. And when they do, they're going to need somebody to call. And if I'm the one that can stop something very bad from happening to them, I, I will be that person. But then at the same time, when I do something, <laughs> I'm not I'm not as empathetic to myself mm-hmm. as yeah. I am to these other people. You know, it's, it's just interesting, man. Now, now really quickly, uh, you know, shifting gears a little bit, you mentioned, so this is, this is the wellness model that helps with major depression. And you keep referencing things that you had gone through. Um, Mm -hmm. and I'm sure that's a, that that may be a long story, um, of the different things that you went through, but tell me how, uh, it's, it sounds to me like these issues you were having with depression and ADHD eventually, resulted in some bad outcomes for you in your 20s 
Is that fair? Yeah, it's it's very fair. Um, probably. Well, I don't know. It's hard. It's hard to like decide which you know which one's more impactful. Um, a lot of people that use substances or behaviors uh, that are compulsive to deal with um, feelings of anxiety and depression are self-medicating. So that that's a component to to this. But people that um, have ADHD are five to ten ten times more likely to develop an addiction throughout the span of their life. So, so you have both of those, you know, kind of, kind of causing additional problems for, for everything. Um, yeah, I fell into addiction, um, pretty quickly, never had any kind of an issue with anything up to the age of 21 and then 21 and a half, 22, right in there, uh, fell into addiction really hard. And it, it was about 22 years to work to work through it. And I kind of juggled a few different ones. I would, I would argue now, even I, I recognize that I'm an emotional eater. So I have a certain Mm -hmm. amount of, of addiction to food and I've been trying different diets and I lose a little bit of weight and then I put it all back on. And so still trying to work through some of, of what that means. That's just because because a Reese's peanut butter cup fills the cracks of the heart. <laughs> I love peanut butter so much. I got to tell you, you know, I I relate to this quite a bit. I don't know if I'm a. I mean, it, it's hard for me to conceptualize eating as an addiction because we have to eat. You know what I mean? Um, but I, I understand the concept. But I definitely am an emotional eater as well. Uh, stress eating is a big thing for me, and you know, it's just like microwave burritos and and you know sweets and cookies and all of that and, and i'll tell you and this is just a recommendation from me because if you're trying different diets uh i i was 354 pounds at one point in my life so wow. i was really heavy i ended up i've i've shared my story before on, on another podcast uh i got in a car accident and uh, and had a brain injury a, a, a concussion a mild traumatic brain injury and um in the midst of that I mean, I wasn't working. I wasn't doing any exercise because I was just laying in a bed for a while and and uh, trying to get over it. And that's when I ballooned up. And I did made a decision. I was like, okay, I need to get this weight thing under control. I was starting. I was on the verge of pre-diabetes. My dad has diabetes. My grandpa had it. The one thing that I noticed that worked for me, I have some friends that do like the intermittent fasting thing, and some people who do like the keto stuff, and that's all great for them. The only thing that has worked for me has just been counting macros, just just like looking at like a getting to my fitness pal, logging my food and just saying, OK, I mean, I'm a bigger guy. You know, when you're 350 pounds, you can eat a lot of food if you eat the right stuff. And uh, and, you know, just and also just not trying to lose like 30 pounds in a month, you know, two pounds a week at most and then just doing a little bit of exercise. And just, it's a, it's more of a lifestyle change after about like 10 days, I would say two weeks. It's easy for me to say this because I'm not very good at this right now, but, um, but like, if you really like keep your carbs down, you know, you, you not to say don't eat anything, but like, you know, give yourself a cheat meal a week and, and the rest of the week, you're just, you know, eating within your macros to lose a pound or two. After about 10 days, two weeks, it's amazing how much better you feel. It's amazing. It really is. Yeah. Of course, yeah. easy to say. No, like I, I, I had two peanut butter and jelly sandwiches right before we started this. So, <laughs> so no, I, I'm with you. I, I feel 
I feel terrible when I first start keto, but once I'm on it, I feel a lot better. It's just like, I can't eat hardly anything. So, you know, if my wife and I are going to go out on date night, it's like, where are we going to go? And that's the worst part. Eating out is the worst part because you go to a place and you're like, okay, no, I don't No, I don't want to eat the cilantro lime chicken and rice. I want the hamburger. You know what I mean? Like, yes. And I want the Suzuki at BJ's. I don't want to, you know, I don't. So I totally get it. It's tough, man. It's tough, man. Yeah. So, so yeah. you were dealing with an eating addiction and you said a couple other ones. What other ones were you dealing with? Um, so I would say my my big three, so it, it, it was confined to my 20s, but um, alcohol was a big problem for me. Um, I, I had alcoholism runs in my family. And so I was grateful that I was able to kind of get out from under that one before it got too bad. Mm. Um so that was a big one. Uh, gambling addiction was much longer. Um, that one, I mean, that, that, that's a really tough one. Tell you what, you want to hear some interesting stories, gamblers, anonymous, like, man, some of the, I go in there, <laughs> hear the wildest story. I mean, you hear a wild stories at AA too. So it's not just gamblers anonymous, but, uh, so those are 12 step groups for people that are trying to, you know, improve and get sober. And then the other one is kind of generally, I would say generally like sex addiction. That was the longest one. Um, and that one can certainly cause problems for people that have a faith community that that have like moral standards that don't allow for that. Um, certainly it can cause, you know, problems in like relationships for obvious reasons. And um, I feel thankful that I, I at least had enough head on my shoulders not to like have like a, an affair with another person while I was married. Um, but I had all sorts of other issues that contributed to stress and problems in the relationship. So, um, those were kind of the trifecta of things that really, really bogged me down. I'm thankfully sober from all of those. And now I'm like kind of working on the food thing, but, but those were the big ones for me for 20 years. Well, I gotta say, if there's one of those three or four that you just talked about that you're still dealing with, I think the eating one would be the the one that would be the the one preferable. So you're dealing with all of these things all at the same time. Well, all at the same time when I was in my 20s, uh, once I got out uh, from underneath the alcohol, then it, it was kind of more just the the sex addiction and gambling. Um, and and the interesting thing was is I kind of like kind of go back and forth. So I might have a, have a period of sobriety from one for a while, and then and then I I just would want to quit, and then I I'd, I'd stop and. And I'm doing well. And the next thing I know, I'm out doing the other one. So it, it, it just addiction is such a problem with the dopamine system. Um, I don't know if you know much about uh, dopamine. Is that something you ever talked with Tony or anybody about? No, I've never really talked with anybody about it. I, I know the concept. I know of things like, for example, people who are addicted to like Facebook and social media, they get dopamine from getting a like or whatever, right? Uh, is that what yeah. we're talking about? Yeah. So, so dopamine is a, is a neurotransmitter. It's not even one of the most, like the biggest neurotransmitters as far as like how much we have in our body, but it is, um, it it is associated with some things like mood. Um, dopamine is, is if you really want to get down to it, um, it really has a lot to do with kind of, uh, focus or motivation, some, a little bit of learning, though it's also norepinephrine. Um, it used, they used to be believed it was kind of like our, our reward center. Like it was really about, um, pleasure. 
it's not necessarily believed to be as much of that. It's probably a different system, um, but it's it's more about um, desire or wanting something. So so if you go to AA, you might sometimes hear something like um, addiction is wanting something more and liking it less. Hmm. So it's not about liking or pleasure, it, but it's about like how badly you want a thing. And it's so weird because some of those things, you know that you don't want them and you know there's bad outcomes, but like you're brain is so fixated on it and it doesn't want to let that thought go and you're it, being addicted to something is is it is a wild ride it's hard to explain to, to somebody that hasn't quite experienced it and that's rough and so you're dealing with all of these things they're having an effect on your first your first marriage right um or or your your former spouse and uh and so tell me what what pulls you out of these things? Uh, well, I, I always wanted to stop. I, I knew that it was not good for me. Um, but my dopamine system was hijacked. Essentially what happens if you were to do a brain scan of somebody, um, that, that is experiencing addiction, what you would often see is some areas in the prefrontal cortex, which is kind of this up here. If you kind of slice your brain into three layers, the, sl the lowest layer would be kind of more associated with um, just kind of things that naturally has to happen. So breathing and heart rate and stuff like that. The middle layer would be more associated with things like um, emotion. Uh, the top layer would be more associated with things like planning and executive function. And so, mm -hmm the the prefrontal cortex is that top layer and they're also in terms of like oldest so the oldest is the bottom the newest is it and by newest i mean the thing that developed latest in evolution for for human beings um so what ends up happening is is that would be the part of the brain that would say hey no that's a bad idea like i you have a hundred dollars going to the casino is a terrible idea but what ends up happening is over the course of addictions, parts of the brain that would normally step up and say, hey, don't do that, start to actually malfunction a little bit. The messaging from those areas of the brain, they kind of power down a little bit. And, uh, and the dopamine, dopamine is rushing. Uh, interesting studies have looked at, at gambling addicts. And what they found is, is if you bet $100 on the blackjack table, and you win, a non-gambling addict will experience excitement. So the brain gets a whole bunch of excitatory neurons and they feel great. Well, somebody that's a gambling addict gets that same response if whether they win or lose. Hmm. So the, the brain is reinforcing winning and losing. I mean, talk about a nightmare to try to overcome. Like you wow. can go there, lose all your money, feel terrible at losing all your money, but your brain is so excited. Man, so... When when you're getting out of this, uh, I mean, how am I going to say this? So, does it when you start? Let me let me ask it this way: Has you does is an addict's brain always like that, or does starting the addiction cause it to rewire to be like that? Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It would appear that that addictions often come from a place of curiosity and and stimulant stimulus sinking so we're looking for something that's stimulating or we're curious that's typically where addiction starts and what we experience is is enjoyment um, hmm. whether it's we drink 
some alcohol and and we're happy drunk and we had a great time at a party or whether we take a drug drug and we love the experience and some people hate the experience and they're like I'm not doing not doing that again but but then you have other people that that quite enjoy the experience and what ends up happening is is our brains can be conditioned so you have Pavlov's dogs same type of thing you're you're introducing this uh, stimulus and then you're having an effect and and this kind of conditioning process happens to the point that that it really overtakes our, our dopamine system what essentially ends up happening this is laid out very well uh in the in a book called dopamine nation by anna lemke that is really interesting for addicts and even for people that just recognize hey maybe i'm looking at my phone too much um really really interesting book <clears throat> and and she talks about how overwhelmed our dopamine system gets so what ends up happening is our dopamine system, like any system in our brain that uses neurotransmitters, it has it has an input and it has kind of a, a receiver. So I don't know if you ever played uh, that game that existed when I was a kid where you have this uh, little board and you press it down and then you put these little pieces in it and then it pops up and throws the pieces oh, everywhere. Yeah, I know what you're talking about. Okay, so... So our neural system works similarly where you have, um, a, you know, so you have a little, a little guy here of dopamine and then you have the receptor and the dopamine fits into the receptor. Well, the brain wants to stay at where, wherever your kind of natural place of, um, of, um, uh, neutral. What, what's the word I'm thinking of here? I knew this would happen eventually. <laughs> uh, yeah, like homeostasis homeostasis thing okay. <laughs> homeostasis. so what ends up happening is you have you have x amount of these receptor sites that will receive dopamine when you flood your neural system with too much dopamine it will start to shut these neural sites down hmm. so what that means is you you still have some sites that are operational that can receive some dopamine but but that some of them are also shut down because there's too much dopamine. So it's, mm. it's too overwhelming for the system. So they start shutting those sites down. What that means is, is you now need, in order to get the same dopamine response previously, you now need more dopamine. Mm. So that, that's, that's what it in effect causes things like tolerance. So mm. one beer doesn't do it anymore. Now I need two and then I need three. And, and, and this is like kind of this process of the brain saying, well, this is too much. So we're going to shut some things down. It's, it's why withdrawal is so painful because the body is now going to a state where, where it doesn't have enough of any particular neurotransmitter, in this case, dopamine. And so it has to go through this painful process of starting to recite. And I don't even know that turning these, these, uh, these uh neurons back on or these these receptor sites to dopamine is actually what what is causing the pain as much as like the physiological response to not having a thing that we are typically used to having but it's it's uncomfortable and it takes a while to adjust and the brain can turn these things back on and we can re reach homeostasis again but it just puts us in a terribly uncomfortable state um so it yeah addiction's the bugger it really is well yeah and i'm curious so so does your brain, when you get off, when you, when you hit your, your moment where you say, okay, I'm going to change and you don't go back, does your brain still stay wired as an addict or does it rewire itself so that that area of your brain that says, Hey, this is not a good idea. starts functioning more properly. 
Yeah, so the brain will change, and you can see that in scans, so they can do, um, like, fMRIs and things where they can, um, or just general MRIs, where they're able to actually look at the brain changing over time. So the areas of the brain that are kind of shut down are not working very well um, as the person is sober and they're not using. Um, they start to to come back and, and act in the way that you would expect them to act. Wow, that's so interesting. So. Yeah. I mean, do you, I mean, I'm, I got to imagine because it, when was it when you finally hundred percent sobriety, where, where did you, where were you? Uh, probably about three and a half ish years ago. It probably was most associated with, um, marrying my now wife. I realized that, that, that was the biggest problem in my relationships was the addiction. I had to get that. I wanted a success to finally have a successful relationship. It just kept just wrecking the relationships. Mm. So. so the, and what was the last one to kick? Was it the gambling or was it the sex addiction? It was the sex addiction stuff. That was, that was the toughest one. Um, you know, when you look at really in particular for a lot of sex addicts, pornography is, is really the, the thing. I mean, I don't know how to express to people how, how difficult it is when you know i don't have to go to the store to buy a pack of cigarettes like i can get rid of all the cigarettes in my house if i was smoking and there's a time between the urge that i finally give into and me getting to the store and making a decision to buy the pack and go outside and start smoking it so that there's a span of time there that gives me a little bit of a buffer to be like, is this really what I want to do? I can turn around and go get some, an ice cream cone instead. Like I, you know, it, it allows the brain some time when you're talking about pornography, which is in your pocket, in your phone, every minute of every day, you know, and, and it's availability and the speed at which you can take care of that urge is such that that, that particular addiction, at least for me was a real real problem yeah i bet so but now i got to imagine now that you've been three three and a half years sober from these things um that you do you feel clearer in your head yeah i feel a lot different it's it was a surprise to me because i'd never experienced this any period of sobriety this long since um about 2022 um, so having three years sober, I, I'm noticing that I don't have as many urges. Of course, the urges are probably always going to be there. The interesting one is alcohol. Like I haven't had a drink in since I was mid my mid twenties. I mean, it's 20, 20 years gone. Um, but man, when I get really stressed out for some reason, my brain's like, Oh, wouldn't that be. And I was like, Oh, that's, that's fascinating 20 years ago, but it's still kind of got something in there that it got, that it got a hold of. Do, and you don't have that with gambling or with the with the sex addiction. Um, I mean, on occasion, there's you know there's differing things. I I don't think going into a casino is a good idea for me, so I just avoid it. So that makes it easy. But mm -hmm. I notice that like every time one of these mega millions gets over a billion dollars, like my brain gets kind of crazy, and I have to like not look at like gas stations or like you know like yeah. many marks as I'm driving around. <laughs> Well, I got to tell you, yeah. as somebody who's never, I mean, I, I, I've gone to like Tahoe or Reno a couple of times and put 20 bucks in a slot machine and been like, well, that was a waste of time, you know, mm -hmm. but, um, but yeah, when it gets to be like $2 billion, I'm like, eh, maybe I'll give it a shot. 
You know what I mean? Like, and I've never yeah. had a real interest in gambling. So that I don't, I don't, it's, that's really interesting. Um, I wish, I, so I know you have a hard out coming up in like five, 10 minutes. And so I, I, yeah. uh, but uh, this, I, we could be talking for, for hours on this. I, I could talk. Oh, to you yeah. It's so there's a lot of depth to this stuff. Yeah. Yeah. I'm going to have to have you back. Cause I really want to talk more about these addictions and how you uh, how you you handled them, but maybe um, you could share real quick um, if there's somebody out there right now who's dealing with an addiction, and you know it sounds like you've ran the gamut of one of the most of the most common. I mean, substance abuse, gambling, and sex addiction, and eating, you know, overeating. What what per, what advice would you give to somebody who's kind of maybe not at that rock bottom that they, that you hear about, but is pretty close and wants to change? You know, what would you recommend? I, I would go get help right away. Um, and there's different, that looks different ways. If you're part of a, of a spiritual congregation, you know, you can talk to a church leader. If, if you have a, a trusted um, therapist or maybe somebody, you know, you could go to 12 step group. Um, I think that sometimes we prolong these a lot. They just don't need to trouble us as long as they do because of the fact that, at least for me and in the stories I hear from other addicts is we're like, oh, I got myself into this mess. I can get myself out. And I, I just, my experience is that that doesn't generally work very well. Yeah. 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 You can reach out. You know, I, I have a lot of addicts in my family. Uh, there's just an addiction gene that goes on. And I, I'm lucky mm -hmm. enough that when it came to that stuff, I mean, I realized early if I go to Chipotle three days in a, in a row, I'm going to be eating it for two, three weeks. Yeah. You know what I mean? And so, yeah. So uh, I, I definitely know I have it and I've just, I've been lucky enough to avoid those things. You know, I, I just, I was always scared of drugs and drinking and all that because I just didn't want to get hooked. You know what I mean? And, and I just know I'm the type that would get hooked fast. And so, um, but if, but what I've seen from my, from the people I know who have those issues is that when they get help, it's really an amazing transformation. It does take, it can take a, a decade or more, but sure. like, you know, I've shared on my, on my, on this podcast before my dad is 25 years sober. He was, he was a drug addict all, um, you know, off and on throughout my childhood. And uh, he's a completely different person now. I mean, you wouldn't recognize him. It's just, it's a completely different person. So you can change, you can get better. And there is, there is life after it. And so, well, Nate, I've appreciated you coming on. This conversation is definitely not over. We are going to okay. <laughs> um, we're going to have to have you come back for a part two, so we can go okay. a little bit deeper because I, you know, there's so many topics that we could address. Particularly, you know, your blended family within the Mormon Church. That's one that I definitely want to want to talk with about with you about, and also a little bit go a little bit deeper into these addictions and what they've what they felt like and how to how to navigate those. And then just as a, a mental health professional, you know, hearing more about what, what it is that you do. So I appreciate your time. Everybody uh, who's listening, I appreciate you coming through. We're not done with this conversation. We'll have to get him back on sooner rather than later so we can continue it. But in the, mo in, in the meantime, uh, if you've liked what you heard, subscribe. You can leave comments on YouTube. You can hit me up with messages. And, uh, and then if you have any questions for Nate, because I'm going to have him back, send them my way and then we, we, we can add that in. So, all right. Well, so take your son to, uh, where, where are you going? You're taking him to a seminary thing. Yeah. They're having a, 
meeting about how the whole thing is going. I tried to get on the app to sign them up, and it said that they weren't using it anymore or something. So I, I maybe I don't know. Uh, Lots of questions. I wonder if I'm supposed to be there. I have kids this afternoon. Anyway, <laughs> well, well, thanks, Nate. I appreciate you coming on, and we'll talk to you again soon. All right. Thanks, Josh.